Climbing to the cockpit with pilot and Link Square's Chief Legal Officer, Tim Perilla, as he invites legal leaders aboard to share advice that will help you navigate even the most turbulent times of in-house counsel work. We'll cover a range of topics from data privacy to legal team structure to public company transactions and beyond. You don't want to miss this series. Fasten your seatbelt and prepare for takeoff. You're listening to Cockpit Council. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Cockpit Council. My name's Tim. I'm the Chief Legal Officer at Link Squares. And with me today on the show, we have Alex Poshma and Deanna Sheridan from Three Step Sports. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, We're excited to be here. So uh, we start off every show the same way. Um, it is pilot themed. I am a pilot. Uh, and um, I like to ask everybody what their pre-flight ritual is. Ooh, um, I don't. Do you, you want to go first or? Uh, mine is a Bloody Mary. <laughs> okay, <laughs> usually <laughs> that that's about it. Everything else can right. just fall into place on its own. <laughs> uh, well, he's a lot younger than me, and I have a child, so yeah, okay. I think mine usually doesn't involve the Bloody Mary, but. Um, honestly, just sort of like doing that last sort of check of everything that's packed, making sure that, you know, I've got uh, everything that I need to. And um, honestly, I try to uh, take a moment after I've gotten through the security gate just to kind of not really truly meditate, but kind of ground myself for a minute before we before do, we take off. Do some easy breathing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. yeah just readjust. Are, are you a nervous flyer? Uh, no, actually, um, okay. but it's just uh, nice to take that moment yeah, in the midst of what's otherwise a really crazy schedule usually. Yeah, exactly. So um, so let's talk a little bit about your career paths. Uh, Deanna, let's start with you. Uh, what, what brought you to 3-Step? Um, well, um, I, I might actually have to back up a little bit before, yeah. before we dig into the 3-Step chapter. So um, I was at Spartan Race as uh, the general counsel for a number of years, and okay. I started in August of 2016, and it just happened to be about a month before Alex started as a nice. legal intern at Spartan Race. And um, Alex quickly became part of the legal team at Spartan Race. He was invaluable. Nice. And he came back for a second semester. I then became the GC uh, that year. And he was on my team uh, until late 2019. Okay. And um, and then I'll, I'll let him talk about where our paths diverged for a little bit. But yeah. then um, in 2021, uh, Spartan Race had really sort of navigated the whole pandemic challenge. And, Tough. you know, we'd gone through a lot of ups and downs. And I had gotten to the point where I thought it was time for another, a new challenge. Yeah. Uh, and I really wanted to stay in sports. And uh, Three Steps sort of fell into my lap. Uh, I was contacted by a recruiter. Nice. And uh, they asked if I wanted to start the legal department at the largest youth uh, sports organization in the entire country. And it just happened to be here in eastern Massachusetts. That's awesome. Um, and so I very quickly threw my hat into the ring, um, got the gig, uh, yeah. and then picked up the phone and called Alex and asked him if he wanted to get the band back together when I got a budget for a number two attorney. So that's awesome. Um, so and then. I'll let Alex talk a little bit about uh, where he was in 2019 yeah. through 2021. Yeah, so as Deanna said, I started there as started at Spartan Race as a legal intern. Tried to stay there as long as I could. They had to kick me out the door at times, um, <laughs> but that was my way of just trying to make myself invaluable, like Deanna said. And you know, I was fortunate enough for that to become my you know gateway to becoming an in-house attorney once I graduated. Yeah, um, was with Deanna and you know the small team that we were operating with for about two years after graduating from law school, and you know working in the event industry was exactly where I wanted to be. So yeah. it was a perfect fit. You know, tie in the sports and the media, it was perfect for me. Yeah. Um, you know, once you know the 2019 era started to hit for us, I started thinking about just how can I branch out my career, mm -hmm. um, and I actually ended up moving over into the risk management and insurance brokerage space okay. for a company based in Boston called Risk Strategies. All right, um, and was there for almost two years to the day when I actually made the commitment to come over to Three Step um, and join Deanna back and forth with like the sports and media and everything like that and. It was a new challenge that I was really excited about because I had never built a legal team before, built yeah. any of the pillars that, you know, a company requires for that function. So I was ecstatic to join her. And here we are almost like two years again. It's like we keep doing these like two year cycles when all the exciting stuff happens. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
That's awesome. And then Deanna, did you have uh, law firm experience before before going in house? I did. Yeah. So um, I was at Hinkley, Allen and Snyder for a yeah. number of years early in my career um, doing construction litigation. Okay. Um, and in my heart of hearts, I knew I was not a litigator. So yeah. um, I uh, eventually left that practice. And, uh, and then I was at Ropes and Gray for a number of years in the private equity group there. So cool. I've definitely sort of dabbled a little bit before I yeah. went in-house. Uh, and then I also had an in-house role from about 2010 to 2015 at a company called Noresco out in Westboro, okay. um, which does energy services construction. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it, it may seem at first glance that there's not a uh, you know, path tying all those things together, but uh, construction lent itself really well to everything Absolutely. at Spartan Race. So yeah. uh, you know, we were doing these big builds every single week for those events. So it's been a really fascinating path. And um, I'm really happy that Spartan Race happened because um, I think, you know, both Alex and I can agree. We really just uh, clicked with the sporting events and the media connections and sponsorship and everything that uh, that type of practice requires. Yeah, absolutely. Working in sports is interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah so, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, what I found most interesting about, uh, so I was at DraftKings before, before this. Um, what I found most interesting about working in sports is um, I never thought about I, I even though you 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 hear about you hear about it on you know every time there's a league strike or something like that I never really thought too much about how important two things are employment like labor and employment mm -hmm. background mm -hmm. and IP mm -hmm. not like it's something that you just don't really think about. You see your favorite athletes on TV or, you know, you know, go to college games, whatever it may be. And it just never really occurs to a lot of people to, to think about like, okay, like those are workers, right? Like, exactly. Like that's, that's their job. Yeah. You know, it, it's pretty interesting though. So. Yeah, there's um, it is interesting uh, to look at what our day to day life looks like and compare it to probably what each of us respectively thought it was going to look like when we yeah. were in law school, because <laughs> it's very different. Yes. Um, and there are even aspects to, you know, tort law that <laughs> uh, right. we really have to master in ways that I never would have anticipated when I thought it was just going to be a transactional attorney. So yeah. um, it really is a true generalist position being yeah. in-house for a sport company because you have to know enough of everything in order to triage and then be able to pull in outside counsel if you need to. Yeah, absolutely. And so one of the things you mentioned in your background litigation, mm -hmm. have you found that how, how have you found that to color the way that you approach in-house practice, if at all? Um, I don't know if it heavily influences it on a day to day, especially when we're taking a look at, you know, approaching a new transaction. Sure. Um, you know, it's always the honeymoon period when you're approaching a new partner and you're, you know, negotiating what those deal points might be. Um, I, it certainly helps in terms of managing litigation as the client. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel like it's helpful to sort of like know what those cautionary tales were. And I learned so right. many of them through, uh, you know, assisting clients with their disputes when I was in litigation that um, it really helps uh, that aspect of it just in, you know, sort of the back of your mind as you're navigating the day to day. Um, but then I think the most important impact is actually um, how I interact with outside counsel, yeah. uh, because having come from a number of different law firms, um, there were some others I didn't mention right. in there that, you know, were shorter stints. Sure. Uh, I think it really helps um, both outside counsel having an understanding of what's hitting the in-house folks on a day-to-day -day basis and the other way around. And so right. um, I really think uh, just knowing um, and appreciating what the outside counsel, you know, is taking on when I have to hand off that work to somebody um, really helps. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've found that. Um, so I... I've been in house my entire career, but had the, uh, I don't know if, I don't know if I want to call it the pleasure, but I had the opportunity to, uh, deal with a bit of litigation throughout my career. And I found that, um, found that it takes a long time mm -hmm. and there are a lot of opportunities to screw things up mm -hmm. and make things go right. 
I think the right. challenge, uh, especially considering both Spartan Race and Three Step and how fast both companies move, the challenge for me is that I've gotten very used to this fast pace over the yeah. last uh, you know, few years. And as soon as you enter litigation mode, it's like everything just slows down to this crawl and you yeah. know, you're sort of at the mercy of the court schedule. So um, I think that really is a challenge in patience as yeah. well as uh, making sure that you're navigating the conversations with the executive team accordingly because people yeah. are usually sort of demanding results because the business needs to move on and um you know there's uh it's two very different worlds uh in a lot of ways exactly and there's that tension of like i want this solved today but i don't want to pay to get it solved today. yes exactly <laughs> exactly which is pretty tough like, to thread the needle solve this today exactly right? <laughs> exactly uh that's that's awesome so let's let's talk a little bit about um about how you approach partnering with the business. That's a recurring theme on, on the podcast here. Uh, we talk, we talk a ton about, uh, being a good business partner. And we also talk a lot about transitioning from uh, law firm to in-house and, you know, what some of the, you know, tips, tricks, struggles, et cetera, might be. So Alex, maybe, maybe we start with you. So, so you came right out of school in, yep. into an in-house role. What's been, what's been the most challenging thing for you there? I think the most challenging thing has been that I haven't seen many things blow up. And so, um, and blow up in the, yeah, I don't don't get to see many things blow up like into the litigation phase that you guys were talking about as frequently. And especially when I had started at Spartan Race, I didn't see a lot of it. Yeah. So I had a lot more fear in terms of like every deal I was working on and, you know, acknowledging the fact that I didn't want my deal to be the one that was under a microscope (laughs) when the litigation actually happened. So for me, it was becoming comfortable with that with that level of risk that, yeah. you know, if you're working on 300 deals a month or a year, like, you never know. It's just the yeah. power by numbers there. Um, and so for me, experience and like seeing enough deals go right really started to give me the confidence that number one, I knew what I was doing. Number two, I knew I was asking the right questions. And number three, not everything was, you know, this parade of parable or problems or anything like that. Right. So. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that was really the biggest struggle, you know, coming right from law school into the in-house realm. But that also plays into how important it is to have really good communications within your legal Mm -hmm. team, because there are a lot of conversations that we would have where I was walking you through something that you didn't necessarily have Mm -hmm. immediate exposure to, but making sure that he knew that, you know, we weren't going to hold him solely accountable if a deal went south. (laughs) Just mostly accountable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You should still panic. Well, a portion, (laughs) you know, the responsibility. Yeah. Um, And I think that's really helpful in terms of undertaking everything you learn in law school and making it sort of hypothetical risk totally. and then going, oh, this is risk that the business is willing to eat. Like, we just need to move forward with this deal. Like, let's go for it. And so that's just part of learning how to be part of an in-house practice and like sort totally. of fine tuning your approach in accordance with the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the risk appetite that the business has, yeah. uh, as well as the priorities yeah. of the business. And I had the the benefit of working for a company that was, you know, as Deanna was talking about, like kind of the wild west, like, you know, we weren't hyper-regulated, we weren't, you know, in any of those uh, areas of the business world that has a lot of attention drawn to it from like the compliance standpoint. So I got comfortable with risk very early in my career, as opposed to starting at, you know, a large corporation where there was a lot of red tape and policies and procedures. Yeah. You know, the risk that I was looking at from the beginning was big risk in terms of like us running these events and the different um, parts of our obstacles that people t- would tend to find risky, especially if they were attorneys. Right. Um, and so that's helped me when I've transitioned into roles in the more corporate sense in terms of feeling comfortable with the risk. Like I've seen yeah. some really risky contracts, but I also know what one looks like when it doesn't have a lot of risk in it. Yeah, exactly. And, it, and whenever you, it's good to recognize that risk and, you know, what I typically tend to do when I see something that maybe there's a, maybe there's a point in a contract where we're like, all right, we're, we want the deal. We're going to do the deal. There's this risk. It's it's more of a emphasis to the people who are managing the relationship to just be like you like you need to actively manage this relationship. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And make sure that make sure that you like each other cuz as long as you like each other, that risk isn't going to come to fruition. Right. Right. Yeah. And or or you're at least going to be able to avoid like one day just getting you know served with process or something like that mm-hmm. you know a lot of things i i say it a lot but 
a lot of things have to happen for that parade of terribles to even kick off. And then once it does kick off to get it to that worst case scenario, you usually have to make a lot of pretty bad decisions. Right. It can go in right. a lot of yeah. different directions, right. even if you get a breach notice, even if the yeah. other side gets the breach notice, whatever it is. So. There there are a ton of rip cords that you can pull along yeah. the way, even after even after it's filed. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, so let's talk a little bit about about how you run your team um, and maybe I assume that there's a little bit of all hands on deck. Everyone does everything. But uh, Deanna, like, how do you think about growing the team? Um, and like, what are some of the most important things that, that you do when you come in and just establish a legal function? Sure. So, I mean, starting at three step especially is a really good um, example because there was no legal function. It yeah. wasn't like I got to inherit structure mm-hmm. uh, or process from a predecessor. Um, and so I would say the first 60 days was really just listening to all of, uh, you know, the business partners, all the different department heads in the three-step world. That means the sport directors, uh, you know, we have eight individual sport industries that we operate within. And so the sport directors are really the ones that are helping call the shots on exactly what level of risk we might want to take on, uh, in a contract or what the challenges and the pain points might be from an operational perspective. Uh, and then, you know, I, I really just did a listening tour to make sure that, you know, I wasn't coming in making assumptions about what we needed. I really needed to respond to not just what the business needed us to approach, but prioritize accordingly. Right. Um, and Alex started uh, only about two months after I did. So I had kind of formed that uh, loose structure of, OK, this is what I think that we need to put in place. And um, the nice thing about bringing him aboard and having worked together before for is that we had all of this pre-existing, you know, communication plans and process and structure that we were able to kind of say, does this actually fit in the three-step world? Do we need to customize it? Is this just not applicable at all? Um, And uh, I think, um, you know, what is typical for most departments, uh, if you have a brand new uh, in-house attorney or a brand new legal department, is that contracts have to be a massive focus. Um, And so it was really getting our arms around the existing population. Where are they? Do we actually have all of them? Are they well labeled? You know, kind of figuring out the repository aspect of uh, the existing um, contracts and then taking those and starting to, to determine can we categorize these in um, you know sort of like bigger buckets so that we can start figuring out what our contract management looks like right. um, and so we started looking for a contract management platform and you know Alex was really the specialist in terms of guiding our team uh, to development of the individual contract workflows and what each of those um, needs were within a contract workflow as well right. as you know what the contract templates look like um, so even though that was a huge focus for us in 2022, that's clearly what 50% of what we need to focus on on a regular basis. Yeah. Um, and so it was getting our arms around what can we sort of kick the can on, yeah. um, even though we know it's a need and what is an immediate right now uh, need for us. And so there was a lot on the insurance, safety protocols, risk management side of things that. Um, uh, we tag teamed on a lot of the day to day, but then on, you know, the, the bigger management issues that was usually me taking it on. So Alex could focus on the day to day operations of the business. Nice. Nice. And so do you do you feel like your stakeholders are primarily the same or do you tend to think about it a little bit differently? Like, are you more focused on sort of those those individual sports leaders and you're more focused on the operations side of things or how? How do you think about that? I would say, uh, you know, I spend a lot more of my time interacting with the executive team and, you know, providing guidance or responding to support requests from the executive team and making sure they get everything they need, Mm -hmm. um, especially since a lot of those requests are coming from the board. And um, and so I would say that's uh, a pretty large chunk of my time. And then Alex and I probably have a complicated Venn diagram in terms of like who we interact with on a daily (laughs) basis, even though we it's a large. Uh, company now we've mm-hmm. gotten to the point where we have almost 1200 employees okay it still feels yeah. very small at hq sure. 
And the sport directors are definitely like in the inner circle of our core clients. Um, and so I would say we overlap in our relationships with uh, the sport directors. And then, um, you know, sort of the further down you get into the business and within each of the sports, Alex has a lot more interaction with the folks that are, you know, sending the contract requests and have that insurance question or whatever those day-to-day -day needs are. Yeah, absolutely. And Alex, how do you how did you go about fostering those relationships when when you first started? Yeah, I mean, luckily Spartan Race prepared me for that. Sure. Um, <laughs> we, you know, working with people who are boots on the ground, you know, they're the people who are you know getting it done. They're the ones who don't care about like the paperwork that has to happen in order for it to be, um, you know, handled the proper way in the company's eyes. They're just like. I need the certificate of insurance. Like, what do I need to do to get this contract signed? They don't even care what's on the contract sometimes. So sure. fostering that relationship in a way where you're breaking down what the risks are in terms of like, this is the reason why we're not signing it right away. Or here's something that you need to manage in terms of the relationship that's there. Right. It was difficult, you know, and I learned yeah. that very well at the Spartan uh, the Spartan time of my career because a lot of the people were like construction workers, essentially. Right. Or it might be their first job out of college and they'd had no college. exposure yeah. to, you know, working with in-house legal before. Yeah. And so you have to be able to translate a lot of what the risk and also what the initiatives are at the higher levels that Deanna is tending to communicate on a lot. So that allowed me to really think about how can I translate this in a way that helps them understand what the risk is, but also helps the business move forward in like the best possible way. Um, and so... Yeah, I mean, it, it was tough, but I think Spartan prepared me for it. So when I got to three step, you know, I understood what level of risk these people were used to seeing and then also what level of risk I needed to, you know, familiarize them with. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so it's just the two of you and uh, on the legal team. We're there. the only two attorneys. We have two legal ops um, folks on our nice. team. Nice. And um, I mean, they're imperative to getting everything done that we yeah. get done on a regular basis. Um, and they were with our corporate operations team uh, and both sort of raised their hand to come over to legal when we started, which is astonishing because that's uh, very cool. Very little exposure to in-house legal at three step at the time. And yeah. um, so the fact that they were willing to, you know, it sounded interesting to them and they wanted to dive in was, uh, you know, really reassuring. Yeah. Um, and they coincidentally started the same day on the team as Alex. So it was really just nice. sort of instant legal team when we all got together. That's awesome. Um, it was very unusual in terms of, you know, yeah. the timing of all of us just immediately rolling up our sleeves and diving in. I obviously very fortunate to have that timing work. Out, yes. But I mean, yeah. To be able to pull two operations people in. Like, yeah. Massive. That is incredible yeah so I, we were I wish able I, could do that. It, um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it'll happen again yeah. I, like I think it would, you know um, uh, we got really lucky with that one but um, you know they've been absolutely instrumental in terms of helping us stand up all of these processes giving us the feedback on what works and what doesn't work yeah. um, and they're also you know working hand in hand with everybody across the business to you know get those certificates of insurance issued and to you know uh, make sure the background check has been sent to that coach and right. um, you know so really that boots on the ground sort of level of support uh, mm -hmm. we wouldn't be able to do it without them. Yeah, that's uh, that's awesome. That's incredible to have, especially people coming over from other parts of the business because they already have yeah. an understanding how right. to how to operate within that and the relationships and they have the relationships. Yeah, yeah. Right. So it was easy for us to get buy-in because yeah. they were familiar faces too. Yeah, yeah. All right, you you both caught lightning in a bottle. Yeah, we really <laughs> did. We, got, we knew it was probably unlikely that we'll get that again, yeah. but we've um, fully utilized it. I mean, we, um, to sort of come back to, you know, your original question, um, we operate uh, very interdependently. All four of us are sort of like running in parallel on a daily basis. And the beauty of a small team is that, especially when you're all in person most of the time, we're really in the office most of the time uh, together, is that there's all these individual uh, checkpoints, you know, yeah. during the day that can be very ad hoc that helps move everything along very, very quickly. And so, um, yes, we have, you know, weekly team meetings and, you know, we'll have one on ones in order to 
make sure that we're digging into the bigger projects. Um, but there are times that Alex and I have no idea what the other person is working on. And, you know, we just have to do that 10 minute sort of, you know, what are your priorities today kind of conversation. Yeah. And so the daily scrum. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And yeah. it really allowed, and, you know, usually in the hallway when we were passing each other. Right. Um, but getting, getting coffee together. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But it really allows us to sort of make sure that we're constantly shifting the legal team's priorities in accordance with the business needs. Mm-hmm. Um, because as everybody knows, the number one challenge with one in-house legal is that, you know, you think you have three priorities that morning when you come into the office right. and then boom, they all shift and you have new, you know, three new priorities. So Exactly. That are now way more important. Than exactly. Else. Exactly. Like, forget about that. That's back burner. Or right. maybe I can delegate it and right. somebody else on the team can take something <laughs> and maybe not. Maybe it's all hands on deck on the new priority. So just that constant communication has been really imperative. That's awesome. So how are you thinking about growing the team? Um, are, is there a need for it yet? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, mean, that's, that's relatively few legal staff for a relatively large organization. Yes. Right. Yeah. 1200 people. We've been working on cloning me for some time and now the experiments aren't working. We're we're coming to reality here. Um, yeah, I think we had 600 employees when we started a year and a half ago. We have 1200 now. That's awesome. Uh, we're highly acquisitive. Um, mm-hmm. And so that number is definitely going to continue to grow. And almost more importantly for the legal team in terms of taking a look at those ratios uh, for support um, is the brands. We we yeah. keep the branding for each sports acquisition okay. uh, that we have so that, you know, the local community, the moms and the dads and, you know, the players are still really recognizing and connecting with that brand or a set of brands right. that we might acquire. Um, and, you know, it's just sort of um, exponential requests right. with each acquisition. And so, you know, as we have each closing, it's not just sort of like, OK, bring them aboard and get them through the orientation and integration checklist. It's right. OK, now we have to really add them to the pile in terms of, you know, that many more contracts and that many more requests. And so. Um, there is a need for um, more staff. I think uh, we've been able to leverage technology really, really well. That's great. Um, in order to make sure that we're not completely drowning, um, but hopefully we'll add uh, two team members by the end of next year. We'll see if we can get more aggressive than that. So. That's awesome. What uh, what kind of data do you track? Um, well, some of it's more manual than others. Um, we definitely, uh, track, uh, total volume as well as sure. sort of the trends and the spikes, mm-hmm. uh, three steps business is unique as, um, because we're very driven by the sports seasons. Sure. Uh, and so prior to each of the spring and the fall seasons, we normally see like an enormous spike in, uh, yeah. contract demands as well as the COI requests. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course, just all of the ancillary relationships mm-hmm. that go along with that, whether it's a sponsorship, um, um, you know, deal that we like need to rush to put in place prior to like a big launch or something along those lines. Um, and so tracking those and predicting those has been really, really important for us to yeah. uh, report up to the executive team so they have awareness of what's hitting and when. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also uh, we, uh, you know, we're tracking, um, I guess, the bands of what the dollar amount thresholds would be. We haven't really started in on tracking like individual terms on risk uh, assumption. And I think that's the next stage for us okay. is that now that we've got a solid year's worth of contract data under our belt, we can now go back in and take a look at our playbooks and determine, OK, how many of these were outside of what we would normally like to negotiate? And, you know, where can we continue to sort of fine tune what our playbook looks like? Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, it's great once you hit that critical mass and you can you can start to you can start to make broader portfolio level decisions. Yeah, those trends are really really helpful to track. Yeah, and it, and it helps it helps from a from a negotiating standpoint to be able to just right out of the gate understand where you where you can go. Of course, right? where you're yeah. not you're you're not sort of making a decision on every contract in in isolation and then sort of hoping that it works out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or going, oh, what was that contract language that we liked then that one deal three months ago? It's, you know, it's all in the same system and we can refer back to it. Yeah. 
Um, so, you know, we're lucky to utilize the uh, technology to be able to focus on the contract um, data, but then uh, we're also tracking incident reporting. And for yeah. us, that mostly looks like conduct um, issues, whether okay. it's player conduct, parent conduct, or uh, coaches or officials. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's really important for us to get our arms around if there are trends there, yeah. because, you know, if they're all happening with one coach or all happening with one, you know, sports brand, that's very indicative of a challenge that we need to address more yeah. than just on a one-off basis. Um, and maybe it's not, maybe it's the same challenge that we're having across multiple sports and we need to start looking at those trends. So yeah. that incident reporting has been really mm -hmm. helpful. And then obviously claims, uh, um, yeah. Just like, you know, any company needs to make sure they're on top of those. Yeah, absolutely. The um, the the contracting, the contracting side and util utilizing technology for that is, I think, pretty obvious. Uh, you know, one of the things that I tell people is that, you know, relatively it's great that you've got 50 kind of like a 50 50, you know, uh, split between contract and non contract work. But that's like now 50% of your world that, you know, from a technology standpoint, I think there's a little bit of a void. I mean, we're obviously trying to fill it. Right. Right. With, uh, with our new product prioritize. But that's, you know, that's sort of, I think, the where the metrics start to get pretty interesting, too. Um, I mean, being able to track those types of incidents uh, over time is, is incredible. I mean, even looking at things like, is it a particular geographic region? Right. Where you have exactly. Issues, right. Uh, one particular sport in a particular geographic region and a different sport in a different geographic region. Exactly. Right. Like are the hockey parents in the Northeast worse than the football parents in Texas? Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Or the officials or whatever, right, yeah. you know, whatever that challenge yeah, is. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it's not even, um, you know, sort of an issue that legal would necessarily need to dive in on. But we have tended to become, I think, because of all the relationship building that uh, we focused on in 2022, uh, the problem solvers just generically. And so right. if it's you're, if somebody's not sure where else to go in the business, uh, a lot of times folks are coming to us and just saying, hey, I have this really problematic conversation that I have to have, you know, with this outside party. Can you give me a few pointers? And, right. you know, we can't jump on the phone and solve every single uh, issue, but it's really helpful for us to have that visibility so that we are seeing sort of the unofficial trends or understanding, no, this is the same challenge that actually every single sport, you know, faces and it's just inherent to the business. Yeah, absolutely. So I know we were going to jump back to it, but I'd love to hear from you, De uh, Deanna, like what, um, what were some of the challenges you had your first in-house gig, like making that transition from a law firm to in-house? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, so my first in-house gig was at a company called Noresco. And at the time, it was a very small subsidiary of Carrier Corporation, which was in turn a subsidiary of United Technologies at the okay. time, even though there's been a lot of mergers and um, uh, separations between the various corporate entities since then. And so I went from only having been in uh, big law practice to suddenly being um, it was, in a lot of senses, the best of both worlds uh, sure. for our first in-house gig. We had a small team. There were just a handful of attorneys and we had a couple of support staff. And the Noresco legal team was really able to um, have the independence and the authority to roll out a lot of their own contract initiatives on their own. Um, it's energy services construction engineering. So the dollar amounts tend to be quite high compared right. to what we're dealing yeah, with right. on a regular basis. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it's if missing you, a comma. Right? Yeah, exactly. And so, if you know, there were definitely times where if it was a $30 million contract, I was just spending my time making sure I was collecting 14 signatures on it to make sure right. it was thoroughly uh, approved and vetted. Um, but it allowed me to sort of synthesize I felt uh, everything I felt I had learned in both a transactional practice and a litigation practice. Um, very, very contract heavy, massive contracts that had a long sales cycle. So a lot of just fine tuning of the terms that we needed to negotiate out with the clients. Um, and so I think it was actually a very gentle introduction to in-house because yeah. uh, there 
there weren't those sort of rapid fire immediate demands on that business because of the industry that it was in. Um, and then the other benefit of working in a place like Noresco, especially when I started in 2010, uh, was that we had these beautiful corporate policies handed down from United yeah. Technologies and we didn't have to develop them ourselves. Right. Uh, and so we were responsible for enforcement across the organization and, you know, making my, my sure. My hands are tied. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah. sorry, got to get your ethics training yeah. in this quarter. Um, but it was really nice to have all of this incredible expertise sort of at your back. Yeah. If I had a software licensing issue and I wasn't quite sure who to go to, I didn't have to pick up the phone and call outside counsel because right. we had an army of intellectual property attorneys in-house right. and I could call one of them. And um, that was my IP partner. And it, yeah. so it was really fabulous to um, be able to sort of slowly transition out of that law firm environment where you had this sort of similar structure because it yeah. was such a large corporate um, environment. And I think by the time I left Nareska, we had um, more than 300 attorneys within all of the United Technologies. Wow. That's, um, a, that's a big organization. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, so very, very different working for a subsidiary of a Fortune 50 company and then going sure. to a place like Spartan Race yeah. immediately after. So I think that was probably the bigger culture shock for me. Yeah, absolutely. And Alex, I know we were talking a little bit beforehand about yeah. um, it mentioned, you know, the importance of of taking a position and you know, would love to hear your perspective uh, as as an attorney relatively early in your career. Um, what are some of the challenges with taking a position? Yeah. And how, and how are you thinking about that? Exactly. Yeah. And or not taking a position because yeah. sometimes that's worse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Find, finding that right balance of, yeah. you know, when the appropriate time is and, you know, looking at the audience of who you're relaying that decision to. Um, I think early in my career, um, and Deanna can attest to this, it was hard to decide where my legal and business analysis should start and end. Um, so when, you know, I was right out of law school, I had been trained to just develop the legal analysis, put it on paper, and then you have a teacher grading you on it, right? Yeah. Um, when you go in-house, you know, your internal clients aren't just looking for the legal analysis, they're looking for a recommendation, they're looking for, you know, your expertise to help them. Um, and, you know, when you're working with people who are boots on the ground, like it's, you know, paramount that they're understanding, like, what are the next steps? Am I allowed to build this 15 foot bridge, you know, over water? Or am I not allowed to, you know what I mean? Right. Um, and, you know, as you're going up the chain in terms of the people that you're working with, whether it's, you know, somebody in middle management, or someone at the executive level, understanding, like, you know, what is the legal analysis portion and then what is the recommendation and do you need to put one in there? And so right. for me in my career, I've started to develop, you know, the sense of when is my recommendation, you know, vital and when is it not? You know, when do we have people who need to just make a decision on this is X amount of dollars if we do it this way, X amount of dollars this way, um, or is it, you know, if we go path A, there are all these different steps that, you know, legal is going to be involved in and that we're going to have to weigh in on. Yeah. Or, you know, option B, that it's like, this is just part of the business model. You know, we're taking on this risk. We're expecting this type of um, issue to come up as part of how we run the business. So thinking about the communication of it is really the key for mm -hmm. me. And, you know, developing that with the people, you know, who you're working with the most and understanding their styles, their risk tolerance, all those kinds of things. Um, because like I was, we were talking about before, you know, our brain and our brain isn't just valued for the analysis portion of it. It's the, you know, the expertise that we're providing. Yeah, I, I, I think about the real value of in-house attorneys as being experts in the company. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Like all of us have a certain level of competency um, that we're uh, to even be in the seat that you have to possess. Right. Like your legal analysis has to be quality. Mm -hmm. Right. You have to have an understanding of a particular area of law if not many areas of law, right? Just enough, at least enough to be dangerous and enough right. to know like- To be able to triage, yeah. to know where the decision tree goes and sends it next. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so if the real value is being an expert in the company, then typically like legal analysis isn't bright line. Yeah, Correct. Unless it's yeah. like, hey, I wanna do this illegal thing. Well, don't do that illegal thing, please. Right, yeah, right. Exactly. right. Um, everything else is just, you know, shades of gray. Yeah. And so, the expectation that logically follows is that you actually have to synthesize that expertise in the business with, you know, the expertise 
in the law yeah. and, right. and come to a position. I remember it was, it was a relatively, uh, you know, it was probably my first couple of months at DraftKings. And uh, I was talking with, uh, with Jason, Matt, Paul, and Tim um, on uh, an issue we were, we were working with. And uh, I kind of, you know, I, I was asked to chase down some, you know, some legal implications of what we were talking about. And it wasn't like telling me about legality of fantasy sports. It was mm-hmm. it was around a deal that we were that we were working on uh, in the summer of, you know, summer of 2014. And um, talking through sort of, you know, well, if we go this direction and we give this, then you know, this, this is what can kind of happen. And Jason, Jason just looks at me and goes, stop. It's like, I want to know what you think. And I'm like, well, I'm telling you, he's like, I don't want to know the legal analysis. Yeah, I want right. to know what you think right. we should do here. Yeah. He's like, and that's, and I told it, it took, it took me, took me back a little bit because it was something that was like very much like not something that normally you would ask of, of an attorney. Yeah. Right. It's funny because I think at, that's, at least the way I perceived it, yeah. something that I would normally ask, like having I, yeah. been through similar transactions yes. in the past, I was never asked that question. Right. And the leaders that I was working with at that time, um, you know, in that that prior experience before DraftKings, like already knew what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I think it's more frequent than not um, that that's the challenge that most people face, especially when we step they, uh, they step into the GC role. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest uh, transition that I've had, period, in my career, in, even though I've had a lot of changes throughout my career, um, is learning how to communicate differently with the executive team. Because prior to that, you're always reporting to an attorney. Yeah. Right, and yeah. so we speak the same language. We go through the same analysis. We want to beat each other up on that analysis and make sure it's yeah. sound. And so even more when we're bouncing things off of each other, wh- whether it's contract language or a risk analysis, it's, hey, does this make sense to you? Da, 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 da. Like, let's go through it. The yeah. executive team does not have time for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I had to learn that very quickly at a place like Spartan Race because Joe DeSena, our CEO, will maybe give you 30 seconds right, right. before he's just done and he's walking out the door. And so yeah. I had to very quickly pivot to, here's what I think we should do. Do you want to hear more? And 99% of the time, the answer was no. Right. And so just taking that and, you know, now it's a very different business and a different different executive team uh, that we support. And so sometimes there is a requirement for more uh, discussion around the analysis. Um, But it's so helpful to know that that's generally what the business is looking for is what's your guidance here based on this. And we don't want to hear on the one hand and on the other hand, we just need to figure out, you know, does, does your recommendation align with where the rest of the business team, you know, is going? And if not, why? Right. And then, you know, make a decision and go. Yeah, absolutely. I think and and you touched on the communication between lawyers versus now communicating with people who are not lawyers. Yeah. I will tell you that my communication style with my lawyers here is extremely different than my communication style with just about everybody else that I deal with. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, and I think that's challenging for I think particularly for attorneys who are coming from a law firm, right, where. Like, or straight out of law school. Yeah, I mean, well, you've sure. got this training, yeah. you know, that you have learned is the way. Right. And then all of a sudden you're looking at somebody who's just sort of blinking at you and you go into an in-depth legal analysis and you very quickly learn, OK, I have to figure out how to reach my audience in a way that, you know, their eyes aren't going to glaze over. What's the best way for me to do this? And yeah. it looks very different if it's for the CFO than it does for an employee on the marketing team who needs like the highest level 101 conversation on trademark enforcement and break it down in a way that makes sense to them so that you can both just make sure you're aligned and then, you know, go execute on the project. And helping them understand the short term and long term implications of like that decision that they're making right then and there. I mean, especially for us where we're working for this business that doesn't always, you know, communicate well on like where we're going to the entire business. Like there are some parts of the business that understand it very well, especially towards the top. But at the bottom of the business, they don't always know. They're told to just keep doing what you're doing. You do it well. That's why you're here. But, mm-hmm. you know, when they think that way, they don't always understand when we're saying, oh, you know, we can't sign that contract right now. And, you know, we can't always give them that visibility because maybe it has something to do with, you know, a confidential nature or a transaction. Yep. But, you know, 
having them understand that if we sign this right now, here's what the implication is. But down the road, if we sign this, are we setting a precedent with this partner? Are we setting a precedent with the market if we do this? And for us, that's pretty big because um, a lot of the partners that we work with at the three-step level are relatively unsophisticated when you look at it from a business standpoint. Like a lot of them were, you know, spit and handshakes. That's how a lot of these deals were done. Yeah. And so when we're approaching these partners now with a legal team who's, you know, analyzing the risk and putting those contracts in place, it's setting a precedent for how the company's going to interact with them and then other partners who are within the space. So that's been a real challenge for me. But as we've developed these relationships with a lot of our business partners, they've started to appreciate that because then it gives them a leg to stand on if there's ever a conflict. Well, and especially when they know we're not going to try to overlawyer it or, you know, be overly risk averse in a business that's actually willing to assume a certain level of risk within, you know, a certain contractual um, framework. And then that's compounded by the fact that we're highly acquisitive and everything is constantly changing. I mean, we are constantly going through integration challenges and so our processes have to change right and i think the biggest challenge that we face is making sure that we are communicating really really well to our business teams uh we're actually going to pivot i know you guys have learned this for the last year but we really need to make an adjustment into this overall process and now we're changing the signature authority thresholds or we're gonna you know approach this you know um I don't know, COI request system very, very differently. Right. And it's to make sure that we're accommodating the needs of the business on the whole. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily make sense to somebody who's just trying to get their lacrosse event off the ground or right. just <laughs> trying to get their baseball, you like, know, club team so happening. Yeah, exactly. And it's just like, oh, like, okay, now they're changing the processes again. Yeah. And so it is really difficult to sort of maintain that trust because you don't want to be constantly sort of shifting the, you know, landscape on people right. uh, but you sort of have to in a business yeah. that is growing this quickly yeah as the business changes everything has to change with it and process transformation is always always the most difficult i think for people to really to really accept particularly when when it's driven by things that aren't immediately visible yeah. mm-hmm. to to the people who are impacted mm-hmm. by it um so i know i know we've got a handful of questions Alyssa has been fielding them here. So Alyssa, maybe we'll let you jump in here. Yes. All right. So the first one is, what is one hot take that you have about working in-house? I've got my hot take. You want me to go go first? first. Yeah, you go first. My hot take is that you actually have to unlearn almost everything you learned in law school. Um, (laughs) It is, and we've we've been dancing around this, right? I mean, uh, I think that there are times that the focus on, Uh, perfect analysis actually gets in the way of us being good business partners. That's right. Uh, And so I think the times that I've really tripped up, um, even in the last couple of years, let alone it being a much bigger challenge when you're just starting off in your career, because that's all that you know, is that I have to really take a step back on a lot of analysis and go, okay, what's the most important thing here? Because um, alignment with the executive team is is paramount. Like you don't yeah. have anything else if you don't have that alignment. Um, and so you have to use the same nomenclature, have the conversations in a way that reach your audience and make sure that you're actually taking your cues from the executive team in a way that you can roll it out to the rest of the business effectively. Uh, and I feel like I've learned far more in the last I'd say six or seven years, just focusing on communication styles, leadership styles, different challenges that, you know, in the old days we used to refer to as soft skills right? that are way, way more important. Um, And I think that uh, law school undervalues that for law students. You're trying to cram as much qualitative legal education as you can into three years for, you know, law students that are going to law school. Mm -hmm. And it's tough to try and layer in anything on top of that. Law schools have been doing a great job for the last 15 years of putting those practical workshops in there and, you know, layering other skills skill, um, skill building. Um, but it's tough because, you know, it's really just preparing you for the theoretical aspects of being an attorney, being able to flip open, you know, your Westlaw or whatever it is and do your legal analysis. And you really have to learn under fire in constant communication with all of the different business partners in a way to be the best business partner that you can. Yeah, absolutely. And I think about, uh, an important an important aspect of that is 
in law school, you're taught that, and it's part of the legal training, you're taught that like every fact matters because it actually does. Like in, in, real, in, in real life and in legal life, every fact matters, right? You can go through the exercise of like, oh, I'm gonna change the facts a little bit. Now, how does your analysis right, change? Right. And change the facts a little bit more. Now, everyone's gone through that, right? In law school and, and elsewhere, right? <laughs> As you start to investigate things. But what, what I think there's, there's an element of unlearning that has to happen is like everything, every fact that you hear is important to you, yes. but not important to them. Right. Right. And so understanding the level of detail that you need to get into to support a position in a way that makes sense mm -hmm. is, I think, really, really challenging. It, and I think it's challenging because so many lawyers are attracted to the law because of the intellectual rigor and yeah. because of the analysis. It's fascinating. I it mean, is. who would want to just endlessly noodle yeah. <laughs> on, you know, this contract language yeah. or this risk analysis or whatever yeah. it is. And, you know, you can't get caught up on that when you're, you know, sort of like in the thick of all of the challenges of managing the business, um, which interestingly is probably one of the reasons I still appreciate managing outside counsel on litigation, because yeah. litigation is still uh, a little more pure in a right, lot of ways right. where it's like, you know, here's the contract dispute or here's the employment dispute. And you can, you know, assess and, right. you know, figure out what your strategy is accordingly. But um, when it comes to. 90% of what the business is facing on a regular basis. It's much more of, you know, project management skills and what have you learned about technology and integrating with your other departments and being a good sort of like cross-functional leader with right. all of your other departments. I think that's the stuff that if you don't quickly figure out how to do that on your own or if you don't get lucky and have a great mentor can be really, really tough to navigate. Absolutely. Alex. Your hot take? Yeah. Get, my, get I, enough time to think yeah, of one? Yeah, <laughs> I think mine is not everything that you work on is going to be cool and sexy. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, especially Anybody going into true. the law with that expectation. E exactly. But there's, there's a lot more crying in your cereal than <laughs> well, you thought yeah. there would be. And, you know, even more refined to in-house for a sports or events company. Yeah. Um, I think Deanna and I probably get this a lot where they see, you know, the cool deals and partnerships posted on LinkedIn or um, on social media. And... I think, you know, a lot of the questions that I get are like, do you work on those deals all day long? And the reality that I faced in both of the roles, you know, at Spartan Race and at Three Step um, was that there's a lot that goes behind the scenes. There's a lot, you know, mm -hmm. that goes into how the sausage is made that yeah. the rest of the world doesn't necessarily see. And, you know, it's really fun to work on a lot of those cool deals. But sometimes the things that are most important to the business are not the fun things that you need to right. do, yeah. right? And, um, you know, especially when you're on a small team and you have to be a generalist, like no job, it's too small for you. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's something that I tell a lot of the law students who reach out to me when they're, you know, seeing that I'm working at a sports company and yeah. they have all of these, you know, assumptions about all the deals that I work on is, you know, yes, I work for a sports company, but I work for a business. And a business yeah. isn't all about like, the highlight, you know, deals that are up on the front page. There's a lot of things that go into helping the business become compliant, make more money, operate more efficiently, all those types of things. And, you know, Deanna and I definitely have learned to find like the fun aspects of some of those, you know, down and dirty things. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think that there's definitely an assumption that. Insurance application. Exactly. Woo! Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I didn't think I was going to be working on insurance yeah. applications when I graduated from law school. So. Things like that, yeah. you know, but there's a lot that you can learn about the business, about the different industries, everything like that through the process. Well, yeah. and I think that um, that has to tie into somebody's why yeah. when they're going yeah. into a particular business. Like if you're looking at a business and you're like, I just want to work for a software company. Well, good luck. You're just going to work for a software company. It may right. not be the one that you're actually aligned mm -hmm. with in yeah. terms of your value set or what you want. And so... I think the good thing for us in examining whether we wanted to start at three step is that we knew enough about this um, business that we were like, yes, we know how to do this. This hits exactly what we want to do on a regular basis. And the why, at least for me, I'm sure it's similar for Alex, is that we get to deliver all of these incredible, you know, events and club sports to kids all over the country. Yeah. And so it's really helpful to keep in mind 
yeah, we might be doing a cool deal with an NBA player or with a former NFL player. And, you know, you can kind of go, oh, I wrote that contract. But you're really living vicariously, you know, through the business person. Whereas, you know, when you know that you're directly supporting the folks that are um, actually creating and operating and managing the sports, I think that resonates a lot more when you get to see all that cool feedback from Mm -hmm. the parents that are just like, you know, my kid had the best time at this event or my kid is so well prepared because of the coaching that we got through, you know, your sport. Um, And, you know, so all the sort of not so fun stuff in the background, you know, it's worth it because that's what you're ultimately trying to deliver. Yeah, exactly. That was I get all the time people reaching out or even just like in conversations like, oh, yeah, and GC at DraftKings. And they're like, oh, my gosh, that must be so cool. I'm like, it is. And it's not. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of (laughs) uncool. Yeah. Plenty of things that are uh, Insurance applications. Yes, oddly enough, exactly. Had those at DraftKings. Yeah, too. I yeah, know. Isn't right? that weird? How every business has those. <laughs> yeah. Oh, maintaining the minute book. Yeah, Remember? exactly. Oh, yes. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's funny. Those were great answers. Um, next one is the number one tip you have for how to run an effective legal team. Um, I've got about a hundred. Um, number one. <laughs> Um, communication, communication, communication. I mean, the only time I ever feel like we're starting to slide, you know, sort of off track is when I'm completely siloed and can't reach out to the team just to connect. And there are times that, you know, three days have gone by and then other times it's, you know, maybe just three hours. And so I think just making sure that every team figures out what their communication style is, whether that's Uh, your platform and you use Slack almost exclusively within the team communications or um, whatever works for that team. I think um, it's really important to stick to it. And, you know, we've tried because we were sort of an instant legal team. We've tried a couple of different things over the last year and a half and some things worked and some things didn't. You mentioned project management. We, we tried a couple of project yeah. management tools that really didn't work. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so it's like I think some of it's trial and error and then some of it's just uh, sort of attuning yourself to what the communication style is for with all the other team members. And that's true for 50 people or five people um, on a team. So yeah. I, I think that's the most important part because otherwise you can't project manage, you can't effectively roll out everything that the team needs to do. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's my number one. My number two is focusing on understanding and learning the different needs of the business. Because mm-hmm. once you have the communication strategy, like the second most important thing is making sure that people are working on the things that matter to the business and we're right. not spending all of our time working on the things that matter to us. Um, that allows or you that to, we think that we think matter. matter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think once you have solidified that, it's one thing because it helps you build the structure, which was a huge thing for us when we first started as a legal department, but also making it a practice to like constantly reset because the business is growing over time. The things that mattered to the business, you know, six months ago and to the legal department will have changed and yeah. making sure that we're constantly, you know, restabilizing and refocusing on like, what does the business need right now? Right. Six months ago, they needed every contract to look to get looked at. Right now, do they? They might not. They might want us focusing on other things. And once we have those resets, it allows us to reshift our priorities, look at different tools that we need to use, look at different communication and project management solutions, all those different types of things. Um, and so that would, you know, that would be my number two. Nice. That's great. I will do one more specific one. What metrics do you track to measure your productivity and effectiveness on your team? Um, whether we're still standing at the end of yeah. the day. Yeah. <laughs> False checks. False checks. Yeah. <laughs> um, we know we're productive right now because we're just so in it and we're constantly just adjusting the dials and knobs to make sure that we're focused on the needs of the business. Um, but I know that that's going to change as the team grows. Um, so I don't know if we have any sort of metric that we use right now, other than some of the, you know, actual data tracking that we were talking about earlier. Right, right. Um, in terms of productivity, I think it's qualitative and just making sure that we're checking in with each other and, you know, hey, did you move, you know, this project forward on this initiative? Because as we all know, it's really hard sometimes to focus on you know, that software integration with finance when you're up to your eyeballs and contracts that day. And so making sure that some of those longer term projects don't get neglected for the short term. 
Um, it's like and, spinning plates. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Like just making like sure that, that they wobbly. don't slow down <laughs> too much. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that's my best, you know, sort of guess at what the metric would be that we would track. Mine would be, and because I'm much more in the weeds and, you know, with our legal ops team in yeah. the contract management systems is, you know, how many contracts came in this week? How many contracts did we get get out? How many are for review? Those kinds of things yep. help me understand like how much we actually got done as mm -hmm. like as a team. Yeah. Um, and that's just because that's where my priority is right now. Um, sure. And that's what, you know, from time to time, the business will ask us about because they'll, everything is how can the legal department get things done faster? And when I have a number and I'm like, we got 100 contracts signed this week, yeah. it gives us some ammo to show that, you know, we're not just sitting, sitting here twiddling our thumbs. Like we're getting serious numbers done for you guys. Yep. And it took us a while to capture that data because we didn't even have a full cycle right. for a while. And now that right. we have it and we understand how to look at the knobs, um, how to, you know, tweak the numbers that are coming in, use charts, all these different tools that a lot of these platforms have made available. It allows us to, number one, like Deanna said, feel confident that like the quality that we're providing is good. Then also like we are, you know, actually being effective in terms of like what's coming in from a contract perspective and then what's going out each week. Uh, I, I want to add to that because yeah. as the team manager, it's also imperative that we have those numbers to refer to so that we're just... Um, managing our own expectations because I know, you know, typically lawyers tend to be pretty hard on ourselves yeah. and we're yeah. always looking for the negative and just going, oh, I didn't get that priority out the door. And so it's really easy to focus on the folks that are screaming, I don't have my contract yet or whatever the challenge was that you haven't solved uh, for that week. And of course, the one thing that fell through the cracks Correct. is the one thing that your CEO is asking you about. Yes, like, exactly. inevitably. Like, inevitably. I did a million things this week. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so actually using that sort of as like, you know, a stabilizing metric um, for each individual team member is incredibly helpful because, you know, it can be really easy, especially when you're constantly talking to all of the other business units to hear um, you know, oh my gosh, legal's underwater and like, you know, it's the black box of legal. We're never right, going to get our right. contract out. When does it, you know, get finalized? And for us to go, actually, we're not failing. We got a hundred contracts signed this week and we were able to hit, you know, A, B and C in mm -hmm. these other matters, I think is incredibly reassuring. And we talk a lot about um, tracking an individual win book for each team member so that nice. not only are you sort of giving yourself that reassurance, like, you know, I actually did pretty great this week, but yeah. you can look back on it at the end of the year and look at, you know, what each individual member contributed as well as what the whole team accomplished. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think what's been really fun for me is seeing how our legal ops team enjoys seeing the numbers now. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Like you can tell when it's been a rough week and we've gotten a lot of contracts in, but you can also tell when it's been a really good week because they won't stop talking about like how good the numbers look in the system, how many contracts we got done, yeah. the smile on their face when they get to run the report and say like, hey Deanna, this week we got 150 out, like last week it was 75. And it just, it allows you to pressure check yeah. and realize like Deanna said that like, despite how many things came in, how many things blew up, like we're still operating as an effective team. Like the, without the data, we wouldn't have that reassurance. Right. Yeah. One of my favorites is looking at uh, looking at the breakage, meaning like how many different deals did we work on versus ones that were closed, yep. and then correcting that for like okay deals that closed in the next period. Mm -hmm. Right. But like, I look at every single time the legal team touches a contract as a capital investment in that relationship. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Right. And so, I provide that information to the to the exec team, particularly to the revenue leadership to be like, listen, like, it's not just your sales team. Like the legal team didn't just appear so that the legal team could do legal team create things. our own work. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like this is, you know, we had 40% of the deals that we worked on that didn't close or we had 20% or 50 or whatever it may be. Like, that's something that revenue leadership should then be looking at and be like, okay, are we getting to contract too fast? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. Like what, what's are we the... using our resources appropriately is the exactly. best way to put that. Yeah. Right. Like, okay, don't just sh shove NDAs to every single person you talk to mm -hmm. or terms of service to every single person you talk to, which, you know, may be a little bit difficult to tell your sales team. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> But like I, I think similarly for us having 
had um, so many different sports brands that, you know, may have been under one umbrella before there was a legal team, but no centralization or standardization yeah. what on what those terms look like. It's really impossible for the business to tell sort of like what's going well in addition to what's going wrong. Right. And so, you know, I think it's allowed us like so, for example, we not only track our contracts by sport, but we track them by the individual brands that are getting requested. Right. So we can go back in and not just look at trends, but go, OK, what's the ROI on the way that they're actually operating their business events? Because it could be just for geographic reasons, just because of the subculture of the brand, it could be completely different than a similar sport brand yep. that just happens to be 200 miles away. Right, and so right. for us to take a look at those and go, you know, hey, this might be pretty interesting for you to take a look at and hand that off to, you know, the sport director, I think is invaluable data that nobody realized you could really utilize the contracts in that way. It was just a, it was just transactional and a means of, you know, getting the work done and getting right. the event launched. Right. Whereas now we can actually go, no, we actually need to tweak some things we're paying way too much in our down payments for facility rentals right or way right. too much up front or whatever it is and start tracking those trends and be able to give really good feedback to yeah. the business and for us because we're essentially like this conglomerate of all these different little businesses who strike their own deals it allows us to see you know where the frequency is and where you know they're overlapping with the same partners and yeah. so it's allowed me to provide some business impact where I see that six different sport operators are using the same facility and they all have different rates. Right. And so I'm able to say, hold off, we're not signing any of these until we get our preferred rate and everyone at three step is getting that. Yeah. And so, you know, that's one impact there around the sponsorship front, seeing that 30 different, you know, uh, brand operators are using the same sponsor as a 10 by 10, you yeah. know, exhibitor. That's a perfect opportunity for our sponsorship team to look at that data and say, hey, does it make sense to just get them as a national sponsor and right. collectively put one contract in place? So legal isn't generating 30 of these. And then we're also leveraging it to give them, you know, better benefits, you know, have one contract in place yeah. for multiple years, yeah, all those volume, kinds of things. Volume favor. So the business yeah. is like really actually starting to become interested in the data to the point where they're like asking us, how can I run these reports on my own? Right. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, Deanna, Alex, thanks so much for joining. Thank it's you. been an awesome conversation. Yeah, we appreciate and, it. And uh, yeah, we got to do this again. Agreed. It'll be it'll be fun. We'll we'll maybe we'll pick like one or two topics and really go deep on them. Okay, that sounds yeah. great. Let's figure that out. Yeah. So we'd love to. Awesome, Alyssa. Thank you as always. And uh, if you like this, give us a follow, give us a like, and all the socials, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. So much.